Hey, everyone. Welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we have uh, two returning guests, Abdul. Hello, hello. And Una. What's up? Uh, and today we are talking about something kind of unusual for us. It's a, it's a live action movie. Abdul has much experience doing movie podcasting, and Una is the one who found this movie. Um, so I thought it was appropriate to have both of them on. And uh, it's a, a movie about an old Matagi hunter, a bear hunter, and it's called The Old Bear Hunter um, from 1982. And it, it is a Japanese movie, obviously. What, what else can we say about this to, to intro it? It's like a very Hokkaido movie. You know what I mean? Like mm, it's very yeah. of its of its location. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not social ecology friendly. no. Yeah, there is a, there's a little bit of uh, cruelty to animals in this movie, that's for sure. <laughs> Murray Bookchin would not approve this. <laughs> it's very sad about that. Yes. This is the director. This is like his only movie, apparently. He did some editing for another movie. Oh, wow. A film from 1957, a horror film. Uh, that's his only other credit. That's pretty impressive. Good for him. He probably worked in like Japanese TV or something. True. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed about this is like no one in this movie like looks like a movie star at all. It, it all seems like kind of normal ass actors. I don't know if you guys got that same vibe. It was very low budget. Uh, I feel like they spent all their money on bears. Like I, it really <laughs> does feel like a movie where the animal wrangler uh, was definitely like the most handsomely paid out of anyone uh, on that set. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's let's give the the brief summary of this movie, and then we can get into the, like the more specific details. So basically, the movie is about like an aging bear hunter um, who's part of a, a Matagi community, um, but he's kind of separated from it a little bit. Like he's very standoffish with a lot of the other hunters. Um, he mostly just takes care of his family and does like small time trapping, um, and he's kind of obsessed with this bear that he encountered uh, a, a man eating bear that um, nobody really believes that he saw. And um, so the movie is basically about him trying to find and hunt the bear. So that's, that's like the synoptic uh, plot, I guess let's, let's start with y'all's impressions. What, uh, what was your initial impression? We'll start with Una for this. Yeah, I thought it was a uh, weirdly not focused on the guy hunting the bear. Like mm. a lot of like the major plot points center around it, but like the emotional arc of it's definitely about his grandson mm-hmm. and uh, his family problems, as it were. And yeah, like the whole animal thing sort of seems to be like a very uh... they kill the dogs twice. <laughs> <laughs> You get one a movie, and they did two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that was very sad in both instances. And, uh, you know, as far as uh, my particular interests go, like, uh, the language in it is very, uh, how would you say, like, definitely not super standard well-spoken Japanese. Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, I noticed it when Heizo, the the hunter, comes home and he says something that isn't uh, Itadashi. 
is something like completely different than that. So I don't even think it was like an accent. It was just like they say something else, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I also didn't uh, get much chance to like go over it again. But like, mm-hmm. they're very mumbly, and uh, I think it's pretty interesting as far as like movies go in Japan. Uh, though I guess part of it's also the whole being an '80s movie <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have the uh, super high quality audio. That's true. Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not I'm an amateur at ripping movies, so that part of that could have been my fault. Yeah, this is all absolutely no. I'm, it's just how eighties movies sound. I've never heard one with like super crisp speech, right? <laughs> uh, and I guess the other notable thing is, as far as like Montague culture goes, there's not like a lot in it. Yeah, I was hoping for more. Yeah, the. Uh, like there definitely seems to be a group of hunters in the village, but they always seem to rely on uh the grandfather main character guy. Hazo, yeah. Hazo. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh and he himself only like there wasn't really a lot of opportunities to like go into specific uh like Matagi vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like they don't talk about very much related to hunting other than yeah we hunt and we train dogs to hunt he references the mountain gods once as an excuse to tell his grandson to fuck off (laughs) (laughs) now you you had different subtitles than i did but um i i feel like he referenced the mountain gods like a, a decent number of times like i know he did when his son was asking him like why he was using his old rifle he definitely said it uh something about it then might be uh yes all i really got from that conversation was that like it's what he's used and it's cheating to use newer (laughs) guns because they're like better yeah and don't rely as much on skill and you know that really doubles up my whole uh wanting to watch this movie because the character is very similar to the character in golden kimmy uh you know, I guess the same justification of newer guns have like magazines and longer shooting ranges, and he only carries a small amount of ammunition. You know, having to reload after every shot. Mm-hmm. It's about the, like the the speed and skill of the hunter rather than the gun, which is neat. Uh, honestly, I'm pretty sure that's just a movie about dogs. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely very focused on the dogs, which. I guess culturally that makes sense. They are very into their hunting dogs. Yeah. Abdul, what, do you want to give your impressions? I mean, I liked it. It's very, like, it's it's quintessential, like, Japanese 80s cinema. You know what I mean? Which is, mm-hmm. like, focuses very, like, leans very heavily into, like, children and children's stories. Right? Um, yeah. Like, you know, youthfulness and, and the kid, like the classic generational stuff. I mean, I, I was surprised by how much I liked it. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like, it felt like a very, like, low budget, but, like, very watchable and fun Japanese movie. I did notice the, I'm not, like, I don't speak any Japanese, so to speak, but, like, it, like, the language difference was pretty noticeable. I appreciate that about it. Um like uh, even I spent some time in in Hokkaido and like even going from like Sapporo to 
uh, like going south to like Naboribetsu and stuff like that, um, you could feel the language difference like pretty immediately. Hmm. Like I had a friend who who lives in Otaru, and his uh, his Japanese like began failing him the second we got into like a more rural area. Wow. Um, just the way people speak and stuff like that, right? Like it's not it's not typical Japanese where it's like very accented. Mm-hmm. So that was neat. You know what I mean? Like usually I can pick out like one or two words here and there. Um, here I could not at all. Uh, it's like a, a neat little like cultural document of a uh, part of Japan that you know I'm fairly certain barely exists anymore. Right. Um, outside of like outside of, like pageantry and festivals and stuff like that. Um, I was surprised by just how fucking dynamic the movie was. Like, in terms of, it felt, uh, have you seen, like, a Grand Budapest Hotel or, like, Moonrise Kingdom? Like, parts of it felt like a Wes Anderson movie with those, like, fast zooms and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I did notice that. And that was really cool. Like, I was expecting something a lot more, you know, stagey uh, than that, because, like, a lot of, maybe not in the 80s, but, like, a lot of, like you know other contemporary japanese cinema like especially in the 70s is is way more still right mm-hmm. um yeah so that was super cool to see like i'm not sure if that was a budget thing where they just didn't have the money to like buy a dolly and like do things slowly but it worked i thought that was great um like that's like a really nice little like yeah it, i'm sure it it has some sort of influence or like some cineast who makes wes anderson type movies has seen it um but i love that about it yeah this might be an insult but it kind of reminded me of like kill bill or something like with the with the camera work yeah it's like and i mean kill bill is you know send up of of a lot of japanese cinema too right right yeah um so like maybe it's not this movie specifically but maybe it's just a a style that's emulating like Mm -hmm. i'm blanking on on other 80s japanese movies but like you know even the original like gamera and stuff like that right involves like the kid journey of self-discovery bad home life (laughs) like it plays all the hits you know what i mean um of that of that like time i think like thematically it worked you know what i mean lots of dogs that's nice to see lots of dead dogs less nice to see um (laughs) like yeah it's i mean that's the other thing right is like thinking about it in the context of like having gone to zoos in Japan and stuff like that. Um, and being like, you know, I don't like imposing my cultural values on, on other places, but like, you know, going to a zoo in Sapporo and being like, ah, this is awful. <laughs> um, it, yeah. it, relative to this movie, it, it's actually an amazing zoo. Um, in terms <laughs> of how it treats animals. Yeah. The scene where the, guy from the neighboring village was coming to inspect the puppies was was pretty sad to watch or the fight yeah like that that bear dog fight was pretty bad and i mean like parts of it you can tell they use dummies like when the bear's rolling down the hill or when the dog's rolling right. down the hill uh but then other parts you're like i really hope they didn't kill a bear um or a dog yeah i was like trying to look really close and be like please is that a guy in a suit or something like (laughs) (laughs) please tell me that's not a real bear or killing a real dog um yeah and i don't know much about like the matagi but i mean it was cool to see you know what i mean like it uh, it without knowing anything about that like little subcult like japanese subculture it was still like neat you know what i mean the iconography mm-hmm. of this guy like standing out against modern japan was really cool 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it's hard to learn much about them because there's so little information about them in English. I mean, that's, that's the other part about like Japan. I sort of struggle with is the fact that, um, it is, you know, I, I, you could make a compelling argument that northern Japan is a stolen land, right? Right. Yes. Um, and I don't think that's an unfair argument to make at all because, like, there's what two thousand, uh, like legitimate Ainu people left, um, and like a large homeless populations and stuff like that. So I mm-hmm. mean, like, yeah, that's the that's the other thing is like it's a reminder of the fact that, you know, Japan did its own form of like settler colonial genocide um sort of within the island right which is something we almost never uh think about or consider uh, outside of like a, a western settler colonial context which is very fair to criticize as well right obviously yeah yeah we we uh got into it a little bit on the last episode that una was on uh, about about golden kamui and una brought up the um tonden which i hadn't heard of um it basically is just like a like a state-backed settler, was it? It was former military people, usually, right? Una. A lot of them, like it, it was pretty much just you know basic pioneer stuff. Uh, you know, anyone who had a reason that they needed to just go somewhere and be given land. Mm-hmm. But a significant amount of them were definitely like former military, and a lot of them ended up getting like drafted. Yeah. So. It was a very military expansion without being like military expansion. Right. And a lot of the um, settlement of Hokkaido, like a lot of the dynamics there uh, resemble um, some of the dynamics in uh, U.S. uh, settlement. Um, That book that I was reading on uh, called The Conquest of Ainu Lands, the author was referencing... Something by, I think it was Frank White. Actually, I have a DM where I mentioned it really recently. Uh, Richard White. Um, he he referenced a book by him called The Roots of Dependency, and it was basically about how um, both uh, groups of settlers um, used trade to, like, basically create a dependency on the state in, in the, like, conquered population. Um because like as like before the settlers came, you know they were hunting to to be like self sufficient to get food and um, you know raw materials and stuff like that. Um, but once they set up trading posts, they started hunting to sell furs to the Japanese to like buy their industrial goods. And so as they did that, it stressed their food sources. Um, and made it harder for them to hunt for subsistence. And so they basically like had to buy rice to supplement their normal food sources. And that's kind of like a, you know, positive feedback loop. Um, and the, the same thing basically happened in the U S where, um, the natives started trading, uh, for various things, they would provide furs and other, um, you know, wild products, and then that would stress their food sources, and then they would become dependent on um, the, you know, farming of the settlers. 
Japan also did. Uh, by the way, I was wrong. It's twenty five thousand, not two thousand. That was my bad. I yeah, I thought I thought so, but I didn't want to say it and be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I I that was my bad. But like the other thing Japan did was engage in like an aggressive, like assimilation program, right? Like yeah, I guess that's where it's it's settler colonial um like mode differs a bit from the U.S. Um, was just like how how aggressively and how quickly can we absorb these people into the like general population um, and stuff like that, which is like yeah it it sucks you know Japan did recognize I guess UNDRIP for whatever that's worth and finally recognize them as people yeah I think it was in like 2010 <laughs> or something very recently yeah it was actually 2019 oh wow it was, it was even more recent than that great. And that did come with, like, something akin to an apology, uh, but, like, also, yeah, it sucks, because, like, even even in my time in, like, uh, Hokkaido, I did meet, like, a professor who teaches indigenous studies at a mm-hmm. Japanese university, and even he was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, people, the like, these people should not have free uh, handouts like they have uh, where you're from, right? That only... That only makes things worse. And I'm like, God damn, that sucks, man. (laughs) Like that. I really don't like having this conversation with you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was bad. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure how to bring this up, but like nominally the Matagi are from Akita. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Like I, I didn't pick up too many location names in the movie, but like generally they're in Akita as far as I could gather. Just, just like South of, Okay. Yeah, it's it's not like that's and I think that's like mostly the like region this happened in, right? It was like yeah, it's south of of Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to like yeah, absolutely clarify like because I, I I wasn't I think they mentioned the town name and then they're at a train station that mentions two other town names. I think the the Ainu were like what southern Hokkaido into into like Akita, right? Like that whole area was i knew land i might be wrong i i'm not like yeah i only have like very passing familiarity yeah it was um hokkaido there were i knew in um sakhalin and i always forget the other island name the kurils yeah kuril yeah um and yeah at, at first they were in northern honshu um but i think they got pushed back by the um the mitsuhide clan yeah, well, stuff like that. I think that happened a bit earlier than like the Totenhe, but yeah, mm-hmm. wanted to location. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess my my impression of the movie overall was um, it was definitely not what I was expecting. Um, when I read the synopsis, I I kind of thought it was going to be like a very like plotting, meditative, um, kind of like lone hunter like journey through the through the mountains to find this bear you know um but yeah like una said it ended up being much more about like his family life which i you know i didn't dislike um it was just unexpected i i kept thinking while i was watching it like when's that fucking bear come in (laughs) like where's the bear (laughs) um i i i don't know if i enjoyed it but i thought it was a good movie if that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah, felt the same. Yeah, like at the end, I was like, uh, "This is this was very sad," and I also wish there was like a little bit more of a resolution. 
I appreciate it because like, there's under no circumstances would I have ever have discovered or watched this movie if you did not bring it up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's always nice when you like see something completely out of left field like this, and you're like, ah, actually, you know what? That was really enjoyable. Um, yeah, yeah. Una brought it to my attention, and um, I was like, fuck it, I I gotta get this movie. I want to <laughs> I want to see this weird obscure movie that I would never see otherwise. Especially like, I mean, I I complain all the time about the state of uh, modern cinema, <laughs> how just how boring every movie that comes out is uh, these days. But um, yeah, this was a refreshing change of pace, even if it had like, you know, profligate cruelty to animals in it. This is the thing, like the fact that it is like weirdly about dogs and family when it's framed as being about a bear is just, like a really mm-hmm. I don't know, nice deviation. <laughs> Yeah. Like, it's not like the synopsis tells you the entire plot and the heroes win. Right. Yeah, and it's all, almost like at the end, you you wonder if he really did win, you know? Yeah. Typical at-what-cost kind of win. Yes. I couldn't even find a synopsis online. You know what I mean? Like, that's how, like, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure if I read Japanese, I'd be able to find something better, but, like... I could not find anything that wasn't broad strokes when I wanted to like, like refresh my brain this morning before we recorded this, Um, which again, not a bad thing at all. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty cool to find something this obscure. (laughs) And I agree. Like it's, it's, it's nice to watch something, especially relative to like, I don't know. I've been watching just like trash TV uh, because there's no movies that excite me right now, (laughs) like at all. Like, I've been watching Big Brother and The Bachelor because it's more entertaining and somehow less vapid than, I don't know, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah. Or whatever. So this was, I watched this in a double feature with some uh, new African cinema, and that was just a really nice way to, like, re-energize my cortex. I saw that uh, McDonald was watching um, Winter Soldier, and I was like, ooh, buddy, I I don't envy you at all. (laughs) Honestly, it is you should you should definitely watch it um because it is that like classic thing where like they introduce a villain ripped from the headlines in this case like explicit anarchists who believe in the abolition of states oh no oh no like the the bad the bad guys are called the flag smashers and they they want to uh, abolish nationhood right oh yeah i heard i heard about this a little bit yeah but it's that that classic <laughs> thing where they like the villains are actually have more good ideas than the quote unquote good guys, but they have to make them like extra villainous in order to sort of sell how bad they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like half the villains in the MCU at this point. <laughs> I have two pro Killmonger shirts. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much it's like it's like it literally goes like we want to abolish states so that everyone can work together to make a better world. And then it's like by any means necessary. So we're going to kill a bunch of innocent people to achieve that. <laughs> and then the 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 quote unquote good guy, who, you know, works for the U.S. Army and who's like having his house foreclosed on because he can't he's a vet who can't like pay for it is like, well, well, you and I just want the same thing. I just want a, a nicer way of getting there. And you're like, oh, no. Oh no! Like it—it it really is like the the manufacturing consent machine in action, uh, you know. And I'm just sitting here saying, by any means necessary, is a Marxist organization. What the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely, yeah, you should definitely watch it. It's pretty spectacular, actually. Like the, I do remember hearing a little bit about it because I remember 
hearing the term flag smasher, and I was like, that makes no sense. A flag is a piece of cloth. How do you smash it? Happy smasher. <laughs> flags. Should be flag ripper or something. I don't know. Yeah. Flag it's, burner. It's, yes, that's good. <laughs> yes, the flag burners. You know, just something more functional. Yeah. That would be too edgy. <laughs> if you smash the flag, it's still intact, you know? <laughs> Modern villains are all just like, yeah, I'm an anarchist. That's why we're uh, enacting a coup to put a war criminal in a dictator position. <laughs> Uh, actually, the anarchists are so bad, they collaborate with a war criminal, the bad guy from an earlier movie, to stop them. <laughs> uh, it wasn't the South African guy from... Yeah, Zemo or whatever his name is. Oh, God. Yeah, it, it totally is. like yeah, Classic anarchist thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's... No, no. The the American government collaborates with the, the war criminal to stop the anarchists. Oh, That's how okay, bad. okay. That's how bad the anarchists are, that you need to collaborate with the villain from an earlier movie. Right. To to make sure that they're stopped. Right? Like that is the the overall messaging of it. I'm I'm compelled to watch it week after week because I'm just curious how deep the rabbit hole goes. And it, it gets deeper every episode. It's shocking, actually. I do want to watch this now to get mad at it. What what's it on? <laughs> It's on Disney Plus. I would just torrent it if I were you. Oh, Jesus. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Do enjoy a good rage watch. <laughs> it is it's a fantastic rage watch. Like it, I you can I can feel myself getting angry every time I watch it. Like and I'm not even fully paying attention. Like I'm playing a game on my phone or something, but like just hearing these words is is incredibly yeah, it's it's unbelievable, actually. I, that's the best thing I can say about it. I might pause my watching of the horny cooking show during the day and uh, watch this instead. <laughs> uh, are you watching What's the Horny Cooking Show? Shokugeki? Uh, Food Wars. Yeah, Shokugeki no Soma. <laughs> oh, yeah. Food Wars is great. I had to stop watching that because I kept ordering in. <laughs> I made a I made a shelly up in steak yesterday because <laughs> of it. Oh, hell yeah. That's, that's my weeb level now. <laughs> Isn't there a Food Wars cookbook out there? There's got to be. Um, there's definitely a site that has like a okay. lot of this stuff. Um, I found a video on like Asian Food Network or something like that. Oh, hell yeah. Where this woman who really liked – she said it was her favorite show, which I was surprised about. Um, I can see liking it, but not it being your favorite show. I, too, enjoy a world where food makes you horny. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was telling you know this earlier. I'm I'm thinking of doing a food mini series. Um, once I'm done with this, seeing like a state thing, um, so we can get back into Golden Kamui and talk about the food part of it. And uh, I found uh, a show about a guy who wants to make like a bread that's unique to Japan called Yukitate Japan, <laughs> and uh, it's great. the The main character is like Luffy, except with baking. Okay. And I told Tony Boswell about it, and he's like super into it. <laughs> yeah, if you ever do, if you ever do a Food Wars episode, let me know. I'd love to come on for that because yeah, Food Wars is uh, oh for sure. Yeah, Food Wars is a whole thing. It's so it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it makes me very hungry all the time. <laughs> I enjoy making my girlfriend watch bad anime with me. <laughs> um, man, that was a real sidetrack. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> it's cool. I, I didn't have a ton of I, – I didn't like have like a a good first impression bit to go with. Yeah, I, I – the last thing I'll say about my first impressions were um, I, I also wish there was more 
in-depth stuff about the Matagi, and I I wonder like how accurate any of it even is because you know they could be just like kind of impersonating them, right? Right. I know that the hunt that they showed in the very beginning from what's in Golden Kamui and from the little that I've been able to read about the Matsugi, that is a fairly accurate depiction of how they would hunt. They have like one person who kind of coordinates the other uh, members of the group and they have two people who like shout at the bear to try and corral it. Um, And then two people who actually carry weapons um, who are like the most experienced hunters and uh, they're the ones that actually like pull the trigger or, you know, thrust the spear, whatever, depending on the era. Is the bear hunt then like, cause you can't subsistence hunt bears, right? Like, is it ceremonial? Is it like they mentioned bear bile and like the, mm-hmm. the, you know, specifics of bear is like a, a healing thing as a, you know, as a healing substance or whatever a lot. But like, yeah, is the, is the hunt more for that stuff or like, yeah, what's the, yeah, it's definitely a religious thing. Um, that's, that's one thing that's in almost every like thing you could read about the Matagi is that it's like a pretty religious ceremony. And that's, that's one of the reasons it's actually hard to find information on them is because, um, they don't really let people join their hunt at all. So it's hard to like observe them. There's only been at least as of, you know, few years ago there's only been two people who have been allowed to join them one was a japanese photographer and one was a non-japanese photographer um that was with national geographic and yeah they they sort of they have like this sort of bear worship thing going you know they kill the bear and then they do a ceremony afterwards to you know thank the whatever they believe in the spirits or the mountain or mountain gods yeah, yeah. Um, they, like, give it sake and stuff like that. But, again, it's it's hard to know specifics of their rituals because n- nobody really knows. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a subsistence thing. Um, the Ainu definitely um, hunted for subsistence. And I think, Una, you were – either you were speculating or you read someone else speculating that the Matagi kind of emerged – through interaction with the Ainu. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So they, they probably took a lot of aspects of their culture and sort of fused it with, um, aspects of Japanese culture. And, uh, yeah, there is like one specific village that's like the Matagi place. Um, I can't remember the name offhand at the moment, but it's where, uh, Tanigaki from Golden Kamu is from. Was the photographer allowed to actually photograph? Yeah. Um, not like – I don't think there were any photos during the hunt. And and one of the things that really got me about it was like I, I thought the photos were very bad. <laughs> like uh, he, he took a picture of the ritual to honor the bear after the hunt. And he was like, oh, yeah, this ritual involves a bear heart and sake. And like the person that's clearly supposed to be like holding the bear heart and the sake is like – he has his back turned to the wall, so you cannot see that at all. It's, so it just looks like a, you know, a bunch of old men in a room, like in an office building or something. It's funny, like when you Google Matagi and look on Google Image Search, like one of the first images, or many of the images, are from the old bear hunter, uh, and a bunch of others are from people uh, like doing fan art of Matagi on DeviantArt, which is hilarious. Yeah. 
that uh yeah that fan art is tanagaki <laughs> oh wow and the the one with the woman and the bear that's a that's an ainu woman because she has the facial tattoo so not even a matagi <laughs> oh interesting so that is a tattoo that's not a that's not a burn mark or anything no that's a tattoo yeah oh intriguing the one i don't know if you can see the one where it's like bare feet yep that's one of the photos of the national geographic person that's a great picture I mean, it's if you're, you know, extremely vegan, uh, it wouldn't be. But that's a fantastic image. You know, uh, as far as like media representation of the Matagi that actually leaves Japan goes, I'm pretty sure Golden Kamo is like basically all there is. Yeah. The only one that anyone would have heard of, you know. Yeah. There's the photographer, the other guy. Uh, there's like an episode of NHK World Prime. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which I downloaded, but I don't know if I can find subtitles for it. Uh, and, you know, there's a few documentaries, but there's not, like, translations of any of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you just... It's just not a thing anyone talks about, like, even in Japan. I mean, I didn't I didn't mention this when I was introing it, but I, I had to buy the DVD of this and rip it myself because it's, like, it's nowhere to be found on torrent sites. Yeah, there used to be a uh, Hungarian dub VHS rip on YouTube, and it's gone now. (laughs) 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 To culture. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I feel like torrent sites have fallen off a bit since, like, the early 2000s. Oh, they definitely have. Like, you really need to go a little deeper into, yeah, I don't know. Like, I have... I'm I use Sinkler with uh with Real Debrit now for like databasing movies. Um and it's like even then it's still impossible to find anything that's like slightly niche that has good seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the weird thing. There's like all these like really nice tools for like automatically downloading and cataloging everything, but like there's not as much to download and catalog. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's sort of the thing. Have you seen the um have you seen the uh, Hayao Miyazaki documentary, like in the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness? Mm-mm. It's I watched it for the first time not too long ago. It's amazing, by the way, because it really is just like a, a years long examination of his like creative process. That sounds awesome. Um, it's it's great. It's just how he goes to work, how he animates, how he creates and ideates, and like it's just a really like wonderful film about Miyazaki doing Miyazaki things. Mm-hmm. Um. And his fail son, uh, yeah. I mean, but like, <laughs> uh, but like one of the things that one of the things that you know he speaks about in the movie to Isao Takahata, who's passed away, um, is like the hegemonization, I guess, of like Japanese media, right? Where he's like, I mean, we're one of the few like true auteurs left in Japan, mm-hmm. right? Was sort of his takeaway, and he's like, you know, these big companies control everything and are like flattening out what our media looks like and and how it expresses itself, uh, which may or may not be fair. Like, you know more about anime than, than I do. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same thing as, um, you know, American cinema, like the, the demand for ever higher, um, and, uh, risk, risk free, uh, streams of revenue has like, lowered the bar for what they're or raised the bar for like what they're willing to take in terms of like having an existing audience. This is actually something that me and uh, my producer were talking about uh, right before we started. Um, Like because they want these increased revenues, um, they want 
something to have an established audience before they're willing to like give it a chance um, in like film or music or um, or animation, which is why like almost every anime that comes out now is based on a an existing manga with like a a pretty dedicated following. Um, and it's pretty rare to find original anime these days. You know, if I could uh, just the thing about anime, <laughs> right? <laughs> Have you ever seen Serial Experiments Lane? Of course. Right, right. Uh, I was watching uh, a. That's the one where every fascist online has that as their profile picture. Yeah, which reason. is weird because it's just schizoid shit. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 the thing about it is, uh, I was watching an interview with the uh, character designer. And he was talking about, you know, early 2000s making anime. Uh, you know, Lane was made as a, a game and an anime at the same time, right? But because the studio was producing just these two Lane things, which are really depressing and, like, fucked up, they were just like, we need something else to do at the same time that's, like, happier. So they just <laughs> literally wrote an entire separate anime called, like, Mie Under 7 or something. I don't remember the exact title. That one I've never heard of. <laughs> right. Uh, but they made it at the same time as Lane, and they literally just did it so that the staff could have a break. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, uh, you know, Panty and Stalking with Garter Belt was made after TTGL. Tengentopa Gurenlagen. I can't say it. Yeah, it's hard. And and that was made after like that success they all were on vacation and just got drunk and were like you know let's make another one <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> yeah it's uh the early like 2000s and up to 2010 anime industry was very uh artists making art whereas you know the majority now is their promotional videos for mm-hmm. a light novel yeah yeah i was also going to say like Making an anime and a game at the same time is the most two thousands anime thing ever. Because right. uh, I think I think it was the last episode you were on Abdul. We talked about Dot Hack Sign, which was released at the same time as the Dot Hack video game series. Was Guns ever an anime as well? Like, was that a? Because I remember playing that game growing up. I don't know if it was ever an anime, but yeah, not anymore. You would not do that anymore, right? right? Like. <laughs> I can't actually think of the last like maybe Persona. That's I think that's the only one, but that's like a very established game series. And Persona was a game first, right? Like yeah. they gave it to Madhouse after. Well, um, the, I, the game isn't an adaptation. The, the the anime is an adaptation of the game. Oh, uh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say like they they got Mad, I guess they got Madhouse to do the animations for the game and then turned it into like an actual anime, which mm-hmm. also for some reason I wanted to buy because I fucking love Persona. It's <laughs> five is maybe my favorite game of all time. Um, uh, but for some reason the anime box set is like three hundred dollars. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> that's, that's sadly normal. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's I guess it's region free, which is nice, but it's so expensive. Apparently, the anime also isn't very good. But yeah, if you ever get a chance to play the game, it's uh, amazing. <laughs> it's just that whole idea of like multimedia projects. Yeah, they they still do it sometimes. But like the latest one I can think of is uh, Valkyrie Drive, which is basically hentai. <laughs> <laughs> that was like 2015. Yeah, I can't think of one either. 
And I like I think there was only like one or two original anime last season. One was uh, Wonder Egg Priority, which I enjoyed. Um, and I don't know if there were any others. If there were, they were probably rated pretty low because yeah, they really go for the the manga adaptations. And I guess that's like you couldn't make a movie like uh, the old Bear Hunter right now, right? Like you couldn't really. I don't think the it would be like a YouTube movie. I think. Yeah, exactly. Like you, there's it would be very hard to finance that kind of movie. I think Japan's uh, domestic like live action film industry is also shrinking, and like it's it's it really is like output driven. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like one director will handle six to eight movies a year, right? Like. If you ever go to like I don't know Takashi Miike's like Wikipedia profile and you look up the movies he directs, it'll have like I think in some cases like four to five films in a year, but only like one or two will make it stateside because those are the good ones that he actually cares about. Um, but it is like yeah, it is such like a tightly controlled, highly budgeted, output driven industry um, start to finish uh, for live action. I guess it is for anime too, but you know, the, obviously the margins are different. The timelines are extremely different, right? Like imagine trying to sell this to anyone domestically. (laughs) Um, Right. You know, you could make it as like an art film these days that would go out to the world, but no one in Japan would watch. Yeah. Best case scenario would be like one of those like weird movie nights at Alamo at like one theater or something. I don't know, (laughs) but probably not even that. Yeah. Occasionally it does do like a it does do a screening in the US from time to time based on like oh we're doing like a, a niche Japanese genre programming like run right or stuff like that um I don't even know how you would start to get the rights to a film like this who you would contact how and why um but I just I do find it very funny like the idea of someone trying to trying to you know spend so much of their their time trying to find the distributor for this to get the rights is very funny to me. <laughs> so do we want to go like into the detailed uh, plot synopsis and we can talk about, you know, some of the scenes that made an impression on us? Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so the movie opens on, uh, you know, snowy mountains of Northern Japan and we see the Matagi on a hunt, and it was like I described earlier. They had the traditional setup of two screamers, uh, two shooters, and a uh, coordinator. Um, the the bear that they're hunting is shot and rolls like way the fuck down a hill. Like I kept going, <laughs> I, I'm glad it was a dummy, but I was like, oh no, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then. I do like how the dummies, by the way, immediately do rigor mortis. Like their <laughs> legs are sticking up in the air as they like roll down the hill. It is very comical. I know unintentionally so, but yeah. 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 Um, and so right after that, we see the, the old protagonist who's like in the mountains for some other reason, but he's like not really with the, the group. And then we see those hunters performing a ritual to honor the bear. And then the, the lead hunter uh, skins the bear. And that, if I remember right, that's like pretty much the last we see of them. They, oh, they see Hazo approaching and they're like, oh, it's been a while since you hunted. Um, please accept this uh, bear meat from us. And he just says like, no, and walks away. Um, which was an interesting setup. He's like very distant from them. 
even though presumably they would be in a you know pretty tight knit community. He goes home and we see his family. Um, he, he has a son and two grandkids, and we mainly see Taro, his grandson, uh, for most of the movie. The daughter is named Yuriko, which took me a while to find. Um, like I didn't see that until like an hour and 15 into the movie or something like that. Um, and I never got his son's name cause he's like off working for most of the movie. Yeah. I, I didn't really get that scene where he's like chasing after his dad or whatever. Like I didn't really understand it, um, in terms of like what it was supposed to communicate, but that was, I mean, it was cute, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. So, oh yeah, I'm see. jumping the gun here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no no big deal. So we this is where we learn about the bear that he's been hunting, and uh, his son says that he's been looking for it for years and hasn't seen it. Um, and then, like this, the whole beginning I think has a lot of like jumps to other things. Like the scenes are very short. Um, it's a lot of like establishing stuff, I think. But uh, so next the grandson Taro um, is petting Shiro the dog and says it's going to have puppies soon. So we find out the, that Hazo's main hunting dog is pregnant. Let's see. The son is leaving uh, for work uh, next. And he says, uh, look well after the children. You're the only one they have here. So kind of letting you know, I, it might have said this beforehand through like the shrine, but um, Hazo's wife is dead. So she's not around anymore. And I don't think they ever really explain where the um, son's wife is. Did any, did either of you pick up on that? No, that was, no, it was very confusing and vague the whole time. Yeah. I I didn't even think about it until just now, but um, yeah, we never see the, the kid's mother. So this is when the, the, the son, the kid's dad is uh, Taro's dad is going to the city to work. Um, the daughter Yuriko says she hopes it's the last time, and uh, she's on the bus with him for some reason. I think she's just like, um, you know, kind of driving him out to the train station or whatever. Um, and uh, the bus driver says that there is a bear that appeared and broke some chestnut trees. Which I, when it said that, I was like, how is that possible? But uh, they show later in the movie, like, the bear, like, destroying some trees pretty good. Um, and they drive off to the city. And this is when Taro is chasing after the bus. Um, which, yeah, I thought that was cute. But um, I, I thought it was basically just to establish that, like, the dad is not really around very much compared to Hazo. Even though Hazo like goes out to the mountains for days at a time, um, he's still around more than the than the dad who goes. I think it was to Tokyo um, to work for like. I'm trying to think. It was definitely months. It might have been longer because, um, if I remember right, it was it was spring or summer when he left uh, when he was going on the bus here. I think it was like winter when he left. Uh. But it was like definitely. I know there wasn't any snow, um, but maybe it was winter and it was just not snowy. Yeah, but when he came back, it was definitely like. Yeah, it was spring. It was like late spring. Yeah, yeah. So he's gone for a very long time. Um, 
a pretty negligent father because like <laughs> this grandfather is obviously pretty intense about you know his bear hunting thing mm-hmm. um and i i do find it funny that he just trusts him to take care of a grandson while also you know basically being yeah, no, the goblin slayer of bears or whatever, just like going out into the world, like one, literally one thing he does. Um, and the only thing he appears to care about, well, that and his dog, I guess. Well, he hunts other things. Ah, oh, fair. Yeah, he does like, uh, he makes a decent amount of money on hunting. Um, there's a scene later where he sells some furs to a specialty shop and, um, the guy pays him 180,000 yen, which is about 1800 bucks, which isn't like a lot of money, but, um, I think the cost of living in Japan is like a bit lower, especially if you're like out in the country, I'm sure. And in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a decent amount for like a hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And it was all like rabbit and Martin furs, I think. So. Yeah. Or no, he was, he was asking about Martins, but I think it was mostly rabbit furs anyway. So yeah. So Kid's dad goes to work. Um, oh, and then the next scene, we learn about the bear bile. They're talking about how it's medicinal. The The teacher is saying that, like, it's a cure for, like, almost anything, which makes it kind of almost seem like snake oil, you know? Well, Taro was saying that his grandfather said that it cures everything. Oh, okay, okay. The, the teacher just told them how it's different than other biles, mostly. Yeah, that part was cool. Um yeah, he asks how you can tell it apart from other biles, and no one but Taro knows. And Taro says it spins when you drop it in boiling water. Um, and so they show it, uh, the teacher dropping a little tiny piece into boiling water, and it spins like crazy um, until it dissolves. Um, and then, like, the best comedic moment I thought was right here where the teacher drinks the the bile tea, and he just groans really loud. <laughs> yeah, that stuff can't taste good. <laughs> <laughs> do you think they actually made the actor drink bear bile for that or i don't know it's possible i mean yeah it's definitely possible i wonder how hard it is to source that if you're not like in a Montague village it, it's probably easier to source in the 80s than it is now yeah that's probably true um because his reaction looked quite genuine okay uh so i, I just looked it up uh, real quick, and there's an article <laughs> that's titled Five Things You Need to Know About Bear Bile Farming, which uh, sounds fucked up. Um, so I guess, like, there's a decent demand for it um, because it is, like, traditional Asian medicine in, like, a lot of places. Um, and so if they have farms for it, presumably, you know, they're, like, you know, CAFO kind of things. Um, so it's probably, like, relatively easy to source there so maybe maybe you drank actual bile yeah i i believe it i think it's more i was thinking like what else looks like that and i was like uh bong resin i guess like uh <laughs> that's probably less likely <laughs> it didn't look good yes i don't think i don't think they had bong resin back then but i'd believe it like you know yeah his reaction was pretty i mean i know they're actors but that was a pretty intense reaction for a movie like this <laughs> Yeah, and it was. Uh, I, I thought comedically it was a, a great reaction. Okay, so after this, um, Shiro, the hunting dog, gives birth, and they actually show like a tiny bit of dogs giving birth. Have, have either of you ever seen that in person? A dog giving birth? No, thankfully. No, it's. <laughs> I don't hang around many dogs. 
Um, I've I've seen it once, and it's uh, pretty. I mean, pretty gross, honestly. And uh, yeah, Bertha's fucked up. Diane was still in the room with me at this point, and she was like, "Why are there kids watching this?" <laughs> but yeah, it's it's weird because like the puppies basically just sort of plop out of there, uh, but they still have placenta on them, and the the mother dog just like eats the placenta off of them. Based. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, after this, um, you know, the puppies are a little bit older. Um, One thing I like about this movie is it takes place, like, over a relatively long period of time. So we get to see, like, a lot of their life events. Um, But so, like, the the puppies are trying to nurse from um, Shiro. And Taro's in there. And he takes a liking to the runt of the litter and um, kind of pushes away some of the other puppies to, like, make sure that the runt gets enough uh, to eat. Um, and he later calls the rent Chibi, which is a cute dog name. Um, and then we see uh, Hazo and Taro go to that shop to sell furs. Um, the shop owner asks Hazo why he doesn't hunt bears anymore. Um, and he comments that like all of the bear furs that he does get are like very small compared to how they used to be. So he thinks there might not even be any big bears left anymore which i thought was like a little bit of uh ecology type commentary like creeping into the movie because i mean it's hard to escape that um in a movie about animals yeah i mean this is like was this during the recession in japan or was it during the like uh, boom years i think there was wasn't the recession in the 90s you're right. It was. Yeah. So this would have been during the boom years. So this is like really a snapshot of, of like a very, something that's faded very quickly uh, over a period of like two or three decades. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, which is also interesting. Like the dad going into the city and stuff like that, um, as opposed to working, you know, in the village, um, among other things is like a, a pretty, you know, yeah, like it, it is like just a moment in time in terms of like uh, what the film looks at and like what it explores, especially was if it was filmed on location. Right. Were you going to say something, Una? Oh, no, it's just sort of, uh, you know, the whole thing about like northern animals tend to be bigger and how like since like the 19th century they've been hunting all of like Hokkaido species down to extinction. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like it's something along the same thing where like, you know, they're bigger bears, more fur, more valuable. So like they're like at this point, they're like at the end of that life. Right. And I also wonder if it's just like the encroachment of civilization on, you know, the wilder areas kind of eliminates the amount of prey that there would be for bears to eat and grow bigger. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So next, uh, they're still in this town, uh, where the, the shop is. Um, I didn't, I didn't catch if they like said where the town was, but it's clearly like different from the village they live in because it's, it seems quite a bit more urban. Um, you know, there's a bunch of like shop fronts all in a row. And so they're at this bar. It might just be like the downtown area of, because like yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, they're not very clear on how big the area they actually live in is at like any point. 
Like, there's a fairly... Yeah, I think the one thing that kind of indicates it is, like, the um, the school children all... They seem to all be in the same class. Yeah, it seems like a fairly large building for what would normally seem like a very tiny village. Like, normally you'd expect, you know, a really small village to have maybe, like, just a... You know, like a room per class, not like a lot of extra staff rooms, like mm, yeah, that size would imply. So uh, they're just not clear on any of it. It's weird. Yeah, I uh, I watched Higurashi, the remake anime, um, last season, and uh, Non Non Biori, which are both like in very rural parts of Japan, and in both of those, um there are so few children in those villages that like they don't have grade levels basically. And they all just sit in a room and do like their own work. Um, but all the school children seem to be about the same age in this movie. Um, so maybe you're right. It is uh, like part of a, a larger settlement and we just don't see most of it. Cause they're like kind of on the outskirts of it. Yeah. That makes sense. It does look pretty remote, though, in the wide wide shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, after they're in the shop, they they go to this bar, um, and they're sitting at the counter, and there's you know some drunk rowdy guys at one of the tables, and one of the drunk rowdy guys um, who says he's from the Forestry Commission says uh, that the bear that Hazo reported couldn't possibly exist. Uh, bears don't get over two or yeah, two meters was it? And, um, and he says that basically everyone's been laughing at him behind his back. Um, and, and Taro cries over this, which, um, that was another thing that I didn't fully understand. I, you know, I thought it was sad that like, you know, his grandpa was being made fun of, but it seems like it's maybe hinting at something deeper that I'm not getting. What did, what did you guys think? I think it's like, uh, you know, because his father's never around and he doesn't have a mother mm-hmm. for some reason. So, like, he basically views Hazo as, like, his father figure, as, like, you yeah. know, the one guy he actually respects beyond just, like, please pay attention to me, you're my father. <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, it's sort of shown throughout that uh, the only people that still respect Hazo are people who, like, respect what he's done. But yeah. no one thinks he can do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. He just hunts rabbits, and all, that's all they expect out of him. So I, I guess it just sort of gets to Taro that like everyone views his grandfather as this old aging man who's incapable, and you know, the, maybe going senile. Yeah, just you know, the, the one guy he respects is constantly being put down by everyone around him. So I, I can see how that would, you know kind of lead him to be very sad about the situation that's a really good point yeah yeah it tracks with like you know again like a broad like respect your elders message that definitely like you know runs through a lot of like japanese and i would say just east asian cinema in general right Mm -hmm. um so like yeah no it's pretty much that i think you hit the nail on the head yeah okay so uh the next scene (laughs) Right after this guy said that the bear couldn't possibly exist, um, we see someone stumbling through the snow to Hazo's house, and he says that a bear killed his cow, and they're all going apeshit over that because, like, bears almost never hunt cows. 
um, because cows are too big for them. Um, And so all the hunters run to investigate uh, this bear attack, and Hazo right away says that he's certain that it's the bear that attacked him um, because it's the only one that would be capable of killing a cow. And uh, so the next scene, uh, we see the school children again, and um, they tell Taro that they think Hazo is too old to kill the bear and that he's only been killing rabbits lately, um, like Abdul just mentioned. And, um, yeah, that was I think that was all for that scene. Um, just like, you know, childhood arguments, my, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing. Oh, and then we see uh, Taro at night. He was sent a... The, the subtitle says tape, tape recorder, but I thought it was a boombox. Um, but Taro is like saying, that, oh, it's the, you know, the tape recorder that I've dreamed of or something like that. And uh, Chibi, the runt, is sleeping in bed in his bed with him. And uh, he wet the bed and Taro was like tut-tutting him. It was like, you won't be able to sleep in the bed with me anymore if you keep wetting the bed, which I thought was really cute. <laughs> um, and then this is when Hazo starts getting ready to hunt a bear for the first time in the movie. Um, he tells Taro that he'll be gone for three to four days. And this is when Taro asks him like why he's taking his older gun. And he says it would be disgraceful to use his newer gun, which is, he says, uh, it can shoot up to 300 yards or 500 with a scope on it. And, you know, uh, shoots so fast. It's basically a machine gun. And so he's going to take his older gun, which only has three shots um, and doesn't have a very long range. Um, and he says it's because the the giant bear is a gift from the mountain gods. And so he should risk his life um, to respect them. Any commentary on this part? I think that's a pretty important scene in the whole movie. I I think it, it makes sense to me. Like this idea of like respecting nature um, you know, it, it sort of runs, I think it runs across any sort of cinema that explores like indigeneity in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes in like fetishistic purposes or whatever. Um, it, it didn't feel bad to me in this one for like as, as bad as it is in something like I'd know last of the Mohicans. Right. Like it felt pretty mm-hmm. natural within the, the flow of the movie, which I appreciated. Yeah. I think I agree with him in, in some sense, like, especially like if your beliefs are based on like nature being connected with you in such a way that like, you know, there are these mountain gods that directly interact with you and like would give you a gift. Um, it makes sense that you would want to like connect with them on a deeper level than you would with, you know, this like kind of alienating machine that's just like push a button and kill anything in front of you kind of, um, device, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that also speaks to why he only carries three bullets with him, right? Like, it's like, oh, if you're going to shoot the animal, you have to shoot to kill. You can't make it suffer, <laughs> right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Una, any any comment? No, I just, you know, it's, it's just that whole idea of, like, you're not hunting for the sake of, like, you go out and kill things you're hunting because it's, you know, part of your sort of influence and connection with the world, mm-hmm. which uh, sort of seems to be like the pretty normal, like 
I guess, predating modern hunting. That's just sort of how it was. It's not a hobby. It's a necessary part of life. So if you can't kill it with what you have, then like getting new things to make sure you can is really just on you instead. Oh, it's it, it makes sense culturally to not want that. Yeah. It seems like it's all, like more about the the process than the result. Yeah. So let's see. Um oh this I, I really enjoyed this scene. This was uh when Hazo and Shira the dog are uh tracking the bear and they they see its footprints. Um but we, we don't see the bear just yet. Um and Hazo basically runs into this like extremely brutal blizzard um that like knocks his hat off with it, with its winds and um he basically has to like give up tracking the bear because he doesn't think he can overcome the blizzard. And then we see the next scene. I wasn't clear on what they were doing in this scene. Um the kids are like somehow like dig a bunch of fish up. And it seems like they're like throwing snow around like to make like a, a net out of snow sort of thing so that they can like trap them in this like part where they're just able to dig them up. Are they like are they like trapping the fish in like a wall of snow in the water, like letting it turn to ice or that's what yeah. I thought. But then they also said like one of the kids was like tossing snow into the into the water and one of the other kids was like, stop playing around. We're here to do a job or whatever. So I'm not sure. And I've never heard of anything like that, you know. I mean, fish slow down in the wintertime when they're like, you know, under the ice or whatever. I don't know. It. I'm sure it makes sense when you know what it is. Like, I'm sure there's an aha moment in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was super confusing. Like, because it doesn't look like traditional ice fishing in any way. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like literally just digging up fish, which, I mean... That's pretty convenient, I guess. <laughs> I just don't know what it is. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of like the opposite of the the process of hunting that we see in the movie, isn't it? Yeah, you're letting them come to you this time. Right. You don't even have to like do any work. You just get a shovel and get, get some fish out of the ground. <laughs> if only it was that easy. Yeah. Oh, so the next scene is the, the really bad, uh, well, one of the two really bad scenes where... This guy from a neighboring village comes to um, get one or more hunting dog puppies and he's like lifting them up by the tail and lifting them up by the scruff and tossing them away and um, inspecting which one to take. And he basically takes like one of them and says he can sell the rest to Hazo. But Taro, of course, wants to keep Chibi. So he he gets to keep Chibi um, who... You know, no one thinks he's going to be a, a hunting dog anyway, so no one's really objecting to that. And this is when uh, Taro says to Hazo, like, that he should hunt with Chibi when when Chibi grows up. But um, Hazo says that most dogs, when they come across a bear, they run away with their tail between their legs. And so only one in a hundred dogs is able to be a hunting dog, which is a setup for a lot of things that come later. So after this, um, we see the kids in school in the spring, and this is when Taro's dad comes home. Taro's like in detention or something like that. Like he's being punished in the on the side of the room, which I thought was interesting. Um, he's with two of the other kids that he's always hanging out with, 
and um, they're they're chatting, and the the teacher's like, "You're supposed to be uh, punished right now. You don't get to talk." And they're like, "Oh, sorry, but uh, Taro's dad is home." And the teacher says, "Well, that's fine. You can go see your dad." And so he lets Taro go and uh, run to his dad. He like stumbles through a stream to get to him, which is pretty cute. And then right after that, um, Shiro is sick, and it gets the same twisted stomach thing that uh, Marley from Marley and Me has. And the the vet says that she has little experience with dogs. Um, I guess this mu- this must be like pretty in the country because she says she has more experience with like cows. So she must be like a rural veterinarian. But so basically like Shiro isn't going to make it through the next day. I mean – that's that's pretty accurate too right like on on a farm it's just you just expect that dogs die right like they're there Mm. more as a utility rather than you know an animal you form you know same kind of bonds you do with house pets and stuff like that like whereas like if your if your livestock is sick oh that's when you would call an event right if your dog is sick you don't you don't generally call an event you just accept that it's going to get sick and die and you get new dog. Right. Yeah. Um, not saying that you treat them badly or that you just like treat them as disposable, but the relationship is very different because one is a companion. The other is your absolute livelihood. Mm-hmm. Right. We just had a, a dog die on Megan's farm. So, Oh, uh, sorry. Blue healer. No, it's, it's okay. It was a good dog, but it was a very, very, very old dog. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain point where, um, it's not as sad for them to die as it is for them to like be alive and suffering, you know? Oh, totally. So, uh, yeah. So Hazo says his goodbye to the dog. I don't remember exactly what he said, but, uh, it was a, you know, fairly intense moment. And we see Taro and Yuriko eating dinner and they, they both want to give their fish to the dog as like a last meal kind of thing. Um, so Taro brings, the two plates of fish out to feed to the dog. But um, Hazo says she doesn't want that. She's a a dignified animal and doesn't want people to see her die. Um, And he says that she'll go to the mountain to die alone. And he like goes back in the house and Taro's watching. And sure enough, um, the dog comes out and shambles away um, toward the mountain while Taro was crying, watching her leave, which is a pretty sad scene. Yeah, that one, that one was, uh, it, again, this movie was way more emotional than I expected to be off mm-hmm. the poster alone. Yeah. So after this, uh, the, this scene was like sad in a different way. Um, Hazo's at a, sh- a skeet shooting competition and he's using his old gun and people are commenting like, how can he use a piece of shit like that? And he's missing every single shot. They said later that he like barely made it through the competition, but like they didn't show him hitting a single target. And I I thought they did some pretty effective camera work for this scene because they're showing like a first person perspective of him shooting at the target. And they like defocus the camera to like show you that his, his vision's going really bad. Yeah. It's well done. Yeah. I appreciated it. And then, like, right after that, he's um, trying to make sure that he can really shoot. So he's, like, shooting at this, like, stationary target made of a, you know, animal fur. 
and he can't even hit that um, until he has this like traumatic flashback to the actual bear attack. Like the first moment we see the the actual like any actual footage of the bear attack and he like screams and shoots at the target again and like nails it. So it kind of seems like, you know, the only way that he can hunt anymore is by hunting that that one bear that he's been after the whole time. I mean, the the vengeance aspect, no, well, not vengeance, but you get what I mean. Like, the the focus aspect mm-hmm. is really nice. You know what I mean? Like, that's a classic a classic uh, trope, but they, they do it well. Yeah, like, trying to accomplish the one thing you couldn't accomplish as someone who's, like, at the pinnacle of your occupation. Yeah. Yeah. After this, we see they're uh, planting rice, um, so they have, like, a at least a small rice farm and the kids are talking about how he's getting old and kind of implying that he's like not as sharp as he was. But then you hear a gunshot and he's like, Oh yeah, that's this one specific guy's gun. And, um, he's shooting blanks, which means he's training his dog. Like he could tell that all from one gunshot, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then Taro like goes to see the, um, the hunter training the dog, which was uh, pretty intense as well. He's like, like shooting his gun to like train the dog to not be scared of it. And then to like run after the, the target that he's after. And so Taro, like seeing this wants to train Chibi. So he and his school kid friends, um, try to train Chibi by like just shouting boom really loud. (laughs) And, um, Sending him after this like toy monkey, one of those monkeys that claps the symbols together. Um, but Chibi's scared of it, which is really cute. <laughs> but they like they keep working at it, and they eventually get him to fetch the monkey. And then we have the obligatory beach episode of of this anime, uh, where Taro is playing fetch with Chibi at the river, which is another cute scene. And then we we go back to some more training, uh, where Chibi's getting better at doing hunting dog stuff and so hazo um sees how well he's doing and he starts doing the like way more intense training of bear hunting where he's like attacking him as a a fake bear and like you know actually like um swiping at him with like bear claws that he has oh and i don't know if i don't know if y'all saw this or if this was like a weird thing with my stream but like there were some weird harsh cuts where like a frame would be on screen like too long and then it would jump to another thing Did that happened to you. Well, you see, it's a, it's a training arc montage. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. I don't know if that was like a, something that went wrong with my rip or what, but yeah, pretty sure it was deliberate. Okay. It, it looked deliberate. Like it, it fits the tone of like a training montage, you know, just sort of that like epic. Look at the dog. Got a ball. <laughs> And, you know, just a kid hanging out with his dog. It's cute. Yeah. At least the parts where Taro was training him. Right, yeah. The parts where Hazo was training him were kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> so next, um, Hazo is, like, trying to get Taro, or not Taro, uh, trying to get Chibi to be, like, used to biting into a bear, I think is what he's doing. Because um, he's trying to, like, feed him meat that's covered in bear fat which is apparently very bitter and not palatable at all. 
so Chibi refuses, and Heizo was like, well, that makes sense because no one wa- would want to eat this shit of their free will. It's gross. Um, so he forces Chibi to eat it while the dog yelps, and Taro is very distressed by this and runs away. Um, and then later, he Heizo tries to give it the bear meat again, and Chibi is much more eager to take it this time. And so he says that Chibi has the, the blood of a bear hunter. Um, so the thing that he thought would, would never happen with Chibi um, actually happens. Um, so then we see the other like really kind of fucked up scene, the the hunting club dog contest, which is basically where these hunting dogs like try to attack a bear who's chained up. And uh, some of them, at least on film, hopefully not in reality, uh, are like killed by the bear. I, I couldn't tell whether it was real or not. I don't know about y'all. It looked extremely real, but like the fact that everything was on leashes makes me think they just had like a, a well trained, a doped up bear um, mm. doing this with like a real dog. Cause they, they pull the bear away right when he's about to bite down stuff like that. Like they have the, yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it's pretty clear that's a real bear, even just the way the snout is and stuff like mm. that. Like yeah. it looks like a Japanese bear. Yeah, they definitely look a bit different than American bears because I like at first I thought it was just a guy in a suit because like the the head and neck were like shaped pretty different um, from American bears. But it's it's so like I got really up close to one when I was at the Sapporo Zoo or whatever. And they Mm -hmm. the Japanese like Japanese grizzlies look a lot like American grizzlies, like brown bears or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But the black bears are they look different. They look like bears with panda faces. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a very weird look. Adorable. <laughs> very scary. Like it, it is terrifying. Cause you know, there was a group of school children there and they were tapping the glass and the bear was getting more and more agitated. Like it was Oof. very, yeah. Yeah. People are like that to animals. I don't get it. I guess it's just cause we're so separate from them. In modern society, I don't know. I mean, it's just a different... The only time you see them is when they're either captive or dead, so you have, like, no respect for them. It's also just a different relationship to animals, I think. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it is just a different sort of idea of, like, you know... Yeah, I'm not going to say, like, animal rights or whatever, but, yeah, it is, It is. I think, fundamentally different. I, that's okay on some level. On others, I. it does make me feel weird. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that thing where, like, you clearly see an animal, uh, and even in this movie, right? Like, that's not a happy bear. No. Um, You know, attached to a chain or whatever, and it's like, I on one hand, like, I feel really, like, bad, like, imposing my own, like, you know, cultural values on the way these animals are being treated. On the other hand, these animals are being treated badly, right? Right, yeah. I mean, they're sort of imposing their cultural values on the animals, so. Two-way street. <laughs> Very fair, actually. <laughs> Yeah. Like man, that bear just wants to like be wild and and free, right? Like Right. Yeah, if I if I find the album, I'll send it to you. I I took some photos at the at the Sapporo Zoo and they are all quite depressing. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean, I find like American zoos depressing even though like presumably they're treating the animals a bit better. It's still sad to like have an animal you know, in captivity, like not in its like normal environment and not 
like maybe with like one or two other of its kind, you know? Yeah, or just alone, like the lion at the Sapporo Zoo. That was rough. Hmm. So in this uh, contest, we see some of the dogs, they're like, you know, getting right in the bear's face, barking at it and nipping at it and stuff. Um, but then uh, they bring in Chibi and it, it's just too scared to get close to the bear. Um, so you wonder if, you know, that uh, Chibi's going to be able to help hunt this enormous bear that's bigger than way bigger than this captive one they have. But Hazo later says that he still believes in Chibi. Even though, like, everyone in the audience is laughing at him um, because he he just can't uh, get in there. And right after this, uh, someone shouts that the bear's back and has killed a young girl. Um, So it's obviously definitely the man-eating bear this time, Um, not just a cow killer anymore. And I I couldn't quite tell. It went kind of quick, and I was, like, typing out notes right right then. But, like, it seemed like it killed multiple people, like, not just the young girl, but... um, Others as well, and it definitely killed two cows as well. It had injured some people. Okay. Supposedly. Yeah, and the headlines were saying people were afraid to go outside um, because of this bear. Um, And this was in the summer, and so next it goes to winter, and uh, Hazo is up at 3 a.m. getting ready to leave uh, to chase after the bear. Uh, he prays to his wife to protect him and uh, wears these like hunting clothes that she made for him, which I thought was really sweet. Um, and Old he wife guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, he tells her that he thinks it may be his last hunt. One, one last, one last ride like that moment. Yeah. Keep trying to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> I'm five <laughs> days from retirement. <laughs> We need you for one last job. <laughs> Told you I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was interesting that he was like kind of vague on whether he meant like he doesn't think he's going to make it out of this hunt alive or if he meant like he's not going to hunt anymore after this. Or maybe he doesn't even know. I don't know if you if either of you had any interpretation of that. I think it's just meant it's like a rule of cool moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he leaves for the hunt and Taro tries to follow him. Um, but Hazo says the mountains are too dangerous for him. And uh, this is what Una mentioned early on. Uh, Taro says that uh, Hazo's eyesight is going too bad. But then Hazo says taking him along will make the mountain gods angry. <laughs> Just trying to get him to fuck off. <laughs> so Taro follows him. Like, he's he's trying to be sneaky about it, but, like, obviously, Hazo knows that he's following him the whole time. He's a he's a hunter. He's supposed to know these kind of things. And uh, so he's, like, taking shelter in this cave, and he's built a fire, and he's starting to prepare some food. And he's like, are you going to stand out there in the cold until you die? Come, just come on, get in here. Um, so he finally accepts Taro, you know, coming on the hunt with him, which I thought was a nice moment. So they're tracking the bear and they encounter another one of those brutal blizzards and they built like a, I don't think igloo is the right term. They basically like pull a tree down and use it as like scaffolding to like build a snow shelter and they just like put a little air hole in the top. Taro mentions how quiet it is inside and like right afterwards um, Taro and the fire, which I think is supposed to be like, you know, kind of symbolic thing. Um, nearly suffocates because the air hole is too small 
Um, so Hazo like frantically punches some more snow out of the way and tries to get um, Taro to wake up. Um, and it seems like they're in there for like a few days at least. They like eat pretty much all the food they have except for Taro says he brought some candy, which I think shows like how young and innocent he is still. But Hazo digs through the snow to the dirt and gets some like edible tubers for um, for him and Taro to eat. And uh, Taro worries that they're going to die in there. Um, but then like soon afterward, they look up through the, the hole in the top and see the, the bright blue winter sky. And so they finally emerge. And so they they come out of the shelter and they're tracking the bear again. And it, it starts to snow a little bit. Um, but then they finally see the bear and they're chasing after it and they can't, they can't get anywhere near it. Um, they keep seeing it just over the hills and, uh, Hazo thinks that the bear is like luring them into the mountains where he has like, you know, more of an advantage. And then like, you know, the tension starts building and Hazo finally gets close enough to attack the bear. Um, and Taro and Chibi are like pretty far behind at this point. But so Hazo like aims his gun at the bear, but falls over and you wonder if he's going to be like, you know, killed by the bear. Um, and then Chibi runs out to help Hazo um, and he, you know, gets in there. He like mix up for his performance at the dog contest and um, he's like fighting the bear. But um, eventually the bears, you know, too powerful for him. So he, really gets chibi. Um, but it gives Hazo enough time to shoot the bear. And I think he gets him with two shots, right? We hit the, sorry, before that, we hit the backstory of like how he, why he's hunting the bear, right? Um, I'm looking over your notes. I'm like, I thought we touched on this, but we didn't. Cause I, yeah, maybe not. I might've missed it. I, when I looked up a description of the movie, it said that like the bear is a bear that he raised. Oh, really? Yeah, like like he killed a mother bear and then found its cubs and took one of the cubs in because he felt bad and then raised it and sent it out into the wilderness. But because it's not afraid of humans, that's why it's like killing and attacking people. Oh, did you catch that, Una? I I didn't uh, see any of that. It was kind of yeah. as far as I know. The only backstory we get is that like traumatic flashback. Okay, because in, in one description from a like screening of the film a couple of years ago, they do a, a semi-synopsis of the movie. And it's like, on one such excursion, he accidentally kills a mother bear who has a cub. He takes the cub and raises it. When the cub reaches maturity, the hunter releases it into the mountains. There's a spiritual connection between them. Later, stories appear about a huge bear hunting humans. The hunter knows that the bear is his, for it has no natural fear of humans. He knows what he must do to make amends. <laughs> Man, that's such a different dimension to it. <laughs> wow. I might have to rewatch it now and see if that's in there. Yeah, that completely changes how I view the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I feel like I've read that in regards to like a different like Matagi story that's told in some like anthology somewhere. Huh. That's definitely like a big difference from the Ainu, right? Because if if the Ainu have have a baby bear for like the same reason more or less like they will not they will not release the bear back into the mountains um 
presumably for that reason, they will do a, like a ceremonial killing of that of that bear. Interesting. Yeah, I just I just posted the link in the Discord if you're interested. But yeah, like I did not remember seeing that backstory in the movie. I felt like I was just like looking at my phone or something in terms of how I missed it. Um, but I just wanted to double check to see if you caught it as, at all. I definitely did not uh, catch that. Yeah, that that definitely like changes. Like yeah, like you said, my whole interpretation of the movie. <laughs> I mean, it sort of explains like the ending bit, right? In theory, like why he buried it instead of yeah, why he says the mountain god sent it to him. Oh yeah, oh yeah, true. Yeah, but like I mean, the I interpreted that as like a sort of general like that's what they say about all of the bears and like the Ainu say that about all animals. That's what I thought. Yeah. So like when he actually shoots the bear, like I, I thought his face in this shot was really interesting. Like he looked happy but miserable at the same time. Yeah, like he just finished his one reason for continuing everything he's been doing. Right. His one reason for living. <laughs> his yeah, wife's dead. I, his bear's I thought dead. it was that. What's he got like, now? yeah, I, I thought it was just that. Um, but if it's like like his son, basically, you know. That's like quite a bit different. <laughs> um, a lot more tragic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought it was more like, um, you know, he finally accomplished his one goal, but like he doesn't really have a lot of reason to go on after that. But then, you know, Taro comes and kind of uh, takes that away. You know, he has he has more of a reason to live now than just hunting some old bear. But Chibi is, Chibi is dead, unfortunately. Um, Chibi didn't make it. And um, Hazo says to the bear, you've been waiting for me too. So like, I, th- I think that does like, um, unless it's like a totally abstract, like spiritual thing that, that does like reinforce that interpretation where he raised the bear um, because otherwise, why would the bear be waiting for him? I don't know. Like, I guess because he's the one that's meant to hunt it or something. Then there's a series of flashbacks with Shibi as uh, Taro and Hazo and I cry over his death. Same. <laughs> yeah, the, the the sad dead dog stuff does does get to you. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, it's it's handled quite well in this. I'm like tearing up a little bit right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, this is really a story that is, you know, the life and death of Chibi, the Akita, you know. <laughs> um, and so the last little bit is... Um, the uh, Hazo says the mountain gods sent the bear to him and that he will send it back to them. And he has Taro help him bury the bear in the snow. And they cut to like a nice faraway shot of like them at the foot of these giant Shirakami mountains, I think is what it is. And I thought it was interesting that they're burying the bear before they bury Chibi. I don't know how to interpret that, but um, it was something I noticed. Through the lens of raising the bear, you know, bury the bear first longer longer history with the bear than uh, yeah than the dog i guess right yeah yeah so that's uh that's the old bear hunter i don't know if i want to i don't i don't know if i want to rate it that's like a pretty common thing to do on movie and show podcasts but i don't know if i actually like doing that because i don't know how i would rate this at all you know I'd give it a 6 out of 10. 
yeah, I don't know what I'd rate it. It's like it's like a fascinating document. You know what I mean? Like parts of it are really well done. It's emotional. I I don't think I would ever watch it again. Hmm. Um, but like you know, I don't regret my time with it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad that I that I got it and watched it. I will say that. I just rate things uh, based on how I remember them. So, like, if I don't really remember it much, it's a five. <laughs> and if I remember it for good reasons, depending on how good the reasons, it goes up. And if it's for bad reasons, it goes down. And I think, you know, if I, you know, in the future, if I recall this movie, I'll think, you know, that that was, you know, it definitely didn't feel bad about the fact that I spent time watching it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a good experience. Uh, you know, definitely didn't enjoy a lot of the treatment of animals, but like it was as a as a story and as a movie it was you know good yeah yeah i i did enjoy seeing like an experience that i'll never have you know yeah and one that's like one that's like a real experience and not like you know like i'm never gonna be like james bond but that's fucking fake but like being a matagi hunter is like a real thing and it's something i'll never experience and uh it was interesting to see like the full um I don't know what word I'm trying to think of, like the full life of of this hunter. Yeah, I, I I could see this if, you know, in any other world would be spread out into something longer and more like, you know, in depth about this guy's life. But like you said, there's not a lot of Matagi uh, media that's come out mm-hmm. at all, um, which which is a shame. So, I mean, in that in that way, like if this film has any semblance of accuracy, like it, it deserves a level of preservation, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I really want to, I really want to like upload it to a torrent site, but the, the ones that are available for movies, like they don't even accept new registrations and you have to like be registered to upload. So I don't even know how it would make that happen. Oof. But it would be nice to like enable other people to watch this movie. Mm. Um, I will leave it in my Google Drive and and include the link in the show description. So if anyone wants to watch this movie, they'll be able to do it by going to that link. Hell yeah, yeah! You are you are the soul keeper of the old bear hunter. <laughs> um, if you don't have like a way to watch video files um, on your TV or whatever, um, there is this Samurai DVD website, which is where I got it. It was pretty cheap. I think it was only 14 bucks or something like that. Pretty reasonable. And they shipped it pretty quick to me. So um, if you want to watch it on DVD um, because you're old or whatever, uh, if you're like Soy Boy or whatever, uh, you can get it that way. <laughs> was it region locked? Uh, I don't I don't think so. I have the case right next to me. Um, I don't actually know how I would. Hell Yeah. Oh, NTSC, that, that means it's region locked, right? Uh, yeah, but that's region locked in North America. Interesting. Okay. Um, but it also says all with like the globe on it. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Globalist DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what a lot of this stuff means. I don't know a ton of film terminology. Like it says anamorphic. I don't know what the fuck that means. Oh, that's the widescreen presentation or whatever. Okay. I thought it meant that it turns into an animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the globe symbol means this film was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, guess, uh, yeah. you know, good choice, Jeffrey Epstein. But uh, 
<laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, any any last words on this movie before we uh, wrap it up? No, no, I, we got it all. I I enjoyed it. I was I'm I'm looking through Samurai DVD right now and looking at movies such as His Motorbike, Her Island. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, there's some very obscure stuff on there. <laughs> this this looks dope, actually. I know one day I'm going to take too much Ambien and order like three hundred dollars <laughs> worth of movies from this. Uh, yeah, it's going to happen one day. <laughs> Bookmarked it. Um. All right. So, uh, do either of you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, uh, check out the latest episode of Goth Angel Sinners, Part 7. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, pre-order the cassette on Bandcamp. It's uh, <laughs> 45 minutes of harsh noise on one side and 45 minutes of field recordings on the other. We're the best <laughs> podcast. Hell yeah. Abdul? Uh, I host a podcast called The Off-Court Podcast. You can find it on Twitter at Pod. Uh, we're a podcast about the much in the same way that this is a podcast about political economy and anime. Uh, we are a podcast about political economy and sports. Uh, yeah, check us out. Follow me on Twitter at socialist raptor. Um, and that's pretty much all my pluggables. It's a very well produced podcast. Like you guys just got going right away. Like no, um, no awkward period required, you know? It's like good from episode one. I appreciate that a lot. And like, you're also not a big sports guy. So if you, if you're enjoying it, that means we're doing something. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know anything about sports, but uh, I, I really enjoy listening to it. Oh, hell yeah. No, I'm happy to hear that. We're almost, we're two episodes <laughs> away from being done recording season two. So it's oh, yeah, nice. I'm very excited for people to, I'm very excited for people to hear it. I, I will say, if you're going to listen to an episode of that, listen to our, uh, Israel episode and the the way the YMCA created Israel is uh, probably our best our best one yet. Uh, I will have to listen to that one. Awesome. Well, uh, Abdul Una, thank you so much for coming on and watching this movie with me. Thank you. No, I had a great time. I had a great time watching it too. Oh, thanks for finding it, getting it. Well, I mean, you found it. <laughs> well, finding a copy of it <laughs> <laughs> was a. Uh... It was a it was a fun little journey, I think. Yeah. Doing that. Hell yeah. Not not something I've done before. First first movie I've ever ripped because, you know, usually I can just find a movie online, but it was a different experience having to actually like get it myself and put it on the computer. <laughs> and you learned a skill doing it. You learned how to rip movies, which is yeah. a very underrated skill. Yeah. Congrats. Um well, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll be resuming um the seeing like a state series next week bye if you enjoyed this episode be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform including spotify and youtube we would love it if you left a nice review on itunes which helps people get the show in their recommendations or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those we have a low-key merch shop at teespring with some cool shirt designs I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NeighborScience. 
Our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at soundcloud.com slash casino socks. And finally, you can check out our website, neighborsciencepodcast.com, which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your podcast app. And thanks again for listening. Say-